Welcome to the Backyard Professor videos. Today is a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day to be out in the wild. It's a beautiful day to make a video. beautiful day to share some insights that I've gained on Joseph Smith's first vision. So come with me as I share something that I think is an extremely interesting idea and point of view. Last weekend I was in the forests and in my sacred grove, I received a flash of insight that I pondered all week long. And I'm going to share it with you. It's on uh, Joseph Smith's first vision. The idea of the first vision, I think, has been misunderstood, misguided by both the apologetic side and the critic side. And the true meaning of the first vision is misunderstood. And of course, you know, leave it to me now, I know the true meaning and all that. No, that's not how I'm approaching this. Not at all. There's probably many different meanings that we can read and grasp and understand from the first vision. This particular insight I received has helped me realize that there's always more to learn. <coughs> Excuse me. There's always more to understand when it comes to the other world and the interrelationship <coughs> of the other world with ours. That's the insight I want to share with you. So I'm familiar with all of the uh, Mormon apologetic, I mean I used to be an apologist, right? Uh, concerning this first vision, the, the various accounts of it, trying to deal with the contradictions of the, of the so-called political motivations or else even the spiritual motivations that Joseph Smith wrote down and presented the first vision later in order to bolster up his spiritual power among his followers after the Kirtland Bank fiasco and all that noise. And, of course, the Mormons, uh, well, Gordon B. Hinckley, for instance, he says the first vision is the foundation of all of the Mormon church, even right up to today. And therefore, we really need to understand the first vision. And Russell M. Nelson, the current uh, leader of the corporation, has also tried to emphasize this first vision for that purpose of maintaining the spiritual, political, and economic strength of Mormonism. 
And of course, the critics fall right in line with that narrative, and they do everything they can, rather, instead of to show that the first vision narrative is valid, of course, Joseph Smith was just a wild, imaginative con man, and he invented it in order to gain power and deceive people and all that. And the various different accounts of the first vision, some say there are eight, some say eleven, some say fourteen, etc. Uh, no one really knows how many. And of course, Joseph Fielding Smith's ridiculously stupid handling of when the one account came in, he hid it and put it in the vault and didn't let anyone know about it, etc. There's all kinds of interesting nuances historically. And the critics, of course, try to prove that uh, Joseph Smith was just inventing stuff, just making stuff up. All of this noise from all sides, just put it away. Because all of that misses the point of what the first vision is about. This was my insight into... Uh, it came percolating down just gently, and I've been thinking about it for the last week or so. came to me in my, quote, sacred grove last weekend out in the forest. Something about being out in nature opens you up to really interesting ideas. So I want to share this insight with you on this first vision. And... This is probably an error that Mormonism does not want you to think about. That's why they have, uh, for lack of a better way to describe this, they have politicized it into an either we're true or we're not narrative. And with this foundational experience, we know now we have the true priesthood. Joseph Smith received all those angelic visitations, and uh, home teaching is true, even though they've gotten rid of it, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's all we ever used to talk about in Elder's Corinth. Ad nauseum, it was the most boring stuff I've ever experienced in my life. But so the the church has controlled the narrative, and of course the critics they fall right in line with it, and they start attacking the church's narrative, and then everyone thinks their own view is right, and so we win the war, no, we win the war, etc. And all of us are completely missing the point. And that's what I want to talk about. What is the point? What does the first vision actually tell us? The thing that struck me the most about the uh, sun's coming up over the rock. The thing that struck me the most about this insight that I received about the irrelevance of the current debate with the first vision a debate that takes us away from actual understanding because it is based upon the context of the church being true and having the proper authority, etc. And that is what the critics are attacking and that is what the church is defending in utilizing this narrative for their own purposes. And as I was in among the trees, and here again now that I'm in among these fantastic rocks out in the wilderness, the idea struck me, and it does strike me again, the historical context 
is with Joseph Smith being either 14 or 15. See, even that's made a big deal of. You mean Joseph Smith couldn't remember how old he was when he had that magnificent vision? I would have never forgotten all the details of the vision, etc. I wouldn't have ever forgotten all of the details of what happened in such a magnificent setting, etc. And therefore, Joseph Smith just made it all up. This falling in line with the Mormon controlling the narrative, all of that's a waste of time. When we look at the chronological historical issue here, Joseph Smith was a very young man. This was before anything concerning Mormonism, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, Apostles, Prophets, Evangelists, Teachers, etc., a church, uh, the visitation of Elijah and Elisha, Moses, Peter, James, and John, John the Baptist, Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods, personal priesthood interviews of worthiness in order for us to be holy enough to gain a testimony on and on and on. This was before the revelation of blacks receiving the priesthood. This was before the blacks were even banished from the priesthood in Mormonism. None of that existed. When Joseph Smith in that grove encountered the divine world. That's what Mormonism takes us out of thinking with their narrative of linking the first vision to their own authority and truth. And critics just simply follow along. What the first vision shows us, I have no reason to doubt that Joseph Smith had the first vision. I really don't. Uh, it is not a matter of attempting to situate it so that it is the basis of a true restoration any more than it's about Joseph Smith being a con man and faking it. I think he did have the divine. Look, he has a long pedigree of people before him who have had their own encounters with the divine world. Pagan, Christian, and all kinds of people from the East and the West. Now, he wasn't aware of that pedigree, of course. Even within his own environmental setting, in his own day, in the own area that he lived in, there were others who were also claiming to have their own visions and accounts of the meeting of the mortal world with the divine world. As the two worlds came together, and that particular person, whoever it was, including Joseph Smith, was in between it when it coalesced together, and it showed him a much wider reality. Even though as a youth, of course, I mean, how would he possibly have been able to expect such an astonishing occurrence? So he could not have even grasped the significance of his own vision at first. That, to me, makes perfect sense.
it is a stunning situation to see and interact with the divine. Every mystic says that. So, <laughs> yes, he asked some questions, and yes, he got some information, etc. None of that has any relevance. What the first vision shows is that no one, us, critics, Mormons, etc., no one needs to be, quote, worthy to have their occurrence with the divine world. It's not about that. What Mormonism does is it brings in this personal worthiness before you'll receive your own testimony, your own revelation, etc., right? So they are controlling the narrative. The first vision gets rid of all of that. That is irrelevant. The divine world is waiting for us to get in tune with it right now. We just have to want that. Now, it's not, it's not even necessary to have a first vision of divine heavenly beings either. That is to miss the point entirely also. Because everyone's vision, everyone's encounter with the divine is somewhat different. There is not just the same experience because every one of us are at different levels. That's about the best way I can describe it. So, of course, not all visions are going to be the same. An atheist's for them to mock the encounter because, see, there's contradictions, you know. That's to completely miss the point again. <laughs> because the church will always make you feel short of the worthiness. Because they don't want you to experience the divine for yourself like Joseph Smith did. Because what that will do is it will fundamentally demonstrate to you that the church is entirely irrelevant. It's not even needed. And that's what they don't want you to know. Mormonism wants to lock you in to its religious structure and meaning, its political and economic basis, which justifies their existence. They are using the divine to justify their earthly views, right? But none of those views <clears throat> were in play in Joseph Smith's first encounter with the divine. Those weren't even necessary. The Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods, the preparation to become holy and worthy of the temple. None of the temples were in existence. None of the church houses. None of the baptisms for the dead or eternal marriages or polygamy. None of that was in existence to encounter the one-on-one, -on -one individually, with the divine. To know your sins are forgiven, because that's what Joseph Smith was told in his encounter. Even before any 
anything else was a thought in his mind. This was the first revelation, right? This tells us that we too can have that encounter with the divine. But of course, that's what Mormonism does not want you to focus on. It wants to give a context of the first vision in their historical narrative that empowers it as a church to be a mediator of your salvation between you and the mediator. They want to be a mediator between a mediator to justify their power. That's how they use the first vision. As critics, you don't need to fall in line with that. You can just let all that go. That's irrelevant because the historical chronological context of the occurrence shows us automatically that anyone can approach the divine. Joseph Smith wasn't the only one in his day having his first vision. There were several others. Some of those accounts also testified that they saw God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. Other accounts say they saw angels. Other accounts say they saw the light, etc. None of the accounts exactly correlate with each other. And there are some Mormon historians who, of course, love to show that Joseph Smith's first vision, in comparison with other visions that was occurring in his day, Joseph Smith's is greater. It's more true. It's accurate. It's, it's better, etc. All of that noise, let go of it. None of that has any bearing whatsoever for the truth that the divine world is certainly available for all men and all women. Because there were other women who were having their first visions too. It's not about what sex you are. It's irrelevant about what church you belong to. It's irrelevant if you belong to any church or not. What is relevant is when you decide to get that contact, it's there. It's available. And quite frankly, I can see why it would be hard to, what, describe, discuss, etc. Because we, in our human magnitude, our size, our physical size, the way our eyeballs evolved to only see a small spectrum of the spectrum that is available. Our hearing, only a certain range we can hear. Our smell, our taste, etc. Our touch. Because of our magnitude, our size, reality is interpreted by our brains in a certain manner. Hard, soft, wet, dry, cold, hot, simply because of the size and the way our nerves work up our spinal cord and into our brain and out throughout the rest of our body. How we feel pain, how we feel joy, we feel warmth. I'm feeling the warmth of this beautiful morning sun right now. If we were a different size, reality would be different. We interpret this reality as it is on this basis 
from our human objective viewpoint because we have no other viewpoint we can experience of that. Here we are, and we are having these experiences in this world right now. If I was to trip and fall on these rocks, or if I was to climb these rocks and accidentally fall on all, it would hurt. I can feel the solidity of the rock, and I would feel the solidity of the ground, bam, as I fell onto it. Yes. That's how we describe reality. The divine world may be a completely different thing. And that would be hard to describe. And of course, that is used against those who have that experience. But others without any priesthood whatsoever, others without any church whatsoever, regardless of what country they live in, Sufis have it, the Muslims have it, the Christians have it, the Jews certainly have it, the Mormons have it, and even non-religious people have it, the love of, and that is how it's expressed, the love of the divine is like the sunshine. Everyone feels the warmth of that sunshine, absolutely. The prominent feature is light and love. Joseph Smith, when he first got to that sacred grove, described a darkness overcoming him. And then all of a sudden, the light, right? Well, that's typical. Uh, I mean, that is in numerous mythologies, the stories from around the world throughout the concourses of time of others having that same experience. And Joseph Smith's description fits that. It gives me the chance to recognize I don't even have to worry about whether it happened or not. To try to argue that Joseph Smith was a con man and he did it for whatever reason and he was faking it and he lied and all that, that is entirely to miss the point. That's to fall in line with the Mormon narrative. So, I can agree. Joseph Smith had his first vision, of course. And my wife noticed something to me the other day that was very interesting as she's reading Brian Murrescu, The Immortality Key. And I've read it and I'm going through it another time because it's so fabulous. People want the magic world. People want more, you know. They want magic. That's why people get so deceived so easy, whether in Mormonism with its prophets and apostles or Denver Snuffer and his translating the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon and his idea of angels coming to him and then all of a sudden people are paying him 150 bucks for a two-hour evening to listen to him say how wrong the Mormons are and how right he is and so on and so forth. People over there having miracles in Europe with the Virgin Mary, etc. The magical world is a desirous world for so many people because this world just isn't enough. And it's probably the same concoction of ideas involving Joseph Smith, too, of course. He, <laughs> he constantly, it almost seems like his was overkill, with the interaction with the other world. But does the fact that we all want more make the more fake? That's a good question. Here's the other key that is really interesting. You can fool the entire world, but you yourself know deep inside 
whether you've actually experienced the divine or not. And if you haven't, then you haven't. But if you want to make a boatload of money, you can fake the entire world out and they'll pay you vast riches. But is that reality? Is that the truth? Is this all there is? Virtually all of the religious stories from antiquity, the mythologies, the King Arthur cycles, the Eleusinian mysteries, the Christian mysteries and sacraments, virtually all of the mystical encounters with the divine, the story of the Buddha, the story of St. George fighting the dragon, the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, all of these stories are telling us that there is another angle, another vaster sphere of reality that we don't normally tap into, but it is entirely available. And trusting our intuition, which in the mythological stories is signified with the symbolic ideas of animals, or plants, talking plants, fairy tales. And you say, oh yeah, those are just myths. Those are fairy tales. No, that's because we make the mistake of concretizing the symbolism when we shouldn't. That's the problem. That's our problem, not the problem of the divine world, not the problem of our world intersecting with the divine world. This is the famous Omphalos stone at the foundation of the Axis Mundi, where the worlds go up and down the shaft of, of the Axis Mundi, connecting the heavens with the earth and the underworld, etc. That's the whole point of all these stories, is to show us that there are varying levels of reality, and if quantum physics hasn't shown us that yet, then you're not paying attention. There really are other levels of actuality that we just can't even describe. Our scientists have gotten to that point now. So rather than seeing Joseph Smith as absolutely an infallible true prophet, and I use that word deliberately because Mormons love to give you the canard, the, oh well, we don't think anyone's infallible, and yet they hate it when you show that Joseph Smith was fallible. Well, make up your minds. Of course he was fallible. Everybody was fallible. Of course. That's not the issue. The divine world doesn't give a flying flip about any of that. That is the context of the organized church religions that worry about all that noise. It doesn't matter. And the critics who fall in line with that be what they are, whatever they are. You're criticizing the wrong thing. Find out for yourself that's possible. And that's the narrative that the churches don't really want you to come to. They're not comfortable. That's the famous tension from antiquity on right up to today, right now, the tension between the individual mystic and the organized church. Who holds the key to the eternal world? Well, Jesus came along in the New Testament and gave us hints that the eternal world is already in us. We just have to tap into that. And that's something else the churches don't want you to know. Why? Because that makes them irrelevant. It makes them superfluous. And they don't want to be that because they have a lot of money to make off of you and I by pretending like, only through them and their sacraments is salvation attainable. Whereas the mystic says, no.
you're already that eternal being. You just have to learn how to tap into the eternal yourself. That's what you're missing. That was the insight I got in my forest, in my sacred grove, to use a metaphor. So that's about all I want to tell you in this video. I've got other videos, and I'm sure in, in some future videos I'll probably fall in line and discuss the implications of the first vision and the various contradictions and the background and all that silly stupid stuff that's totally unnecessary for our own spirituality. It does not take a church to be spiritual. It does not take uh, a priesthood or angels or whatever you want to call it, sacraments, worthiness. You have to be involved for 45 years before God deigns to visit you and tell you the truth. And on and on and on. None of that is relevant to the eternal world. It's already here. We just don't recognize it. So it's up to us to learn how to recognize it. And when you want to, it will give you plenty of hints. I can personally assure you of that. I'm getting mine. So if I can, you can. So this one isn't as uh, argumentative and so on and so forth because there's no point in arguing. None whatsoever. That's the other insight. You don't have to argue. It's like Aristotle said of the ancient Eleusinian mysteries. He said, they did not go to those mysteries to learn something. Like we do at church, you know. We want to we wanna go to church so that we can learn all about heaven and God and angels. No. In the mysteries, you don't go to learn anything. You go to experience something. Joseph Smith's first vision is that experience. And notice that it came first. Because that's the foundation of your own spirituality, is the experience. That's what you need to get. And if you don't, then you'll fall right in line with whatever church it is you belong to, and you'll try to do it their way. Because they, of course, assure you and promise you, you know, for a small tithing fee or whatever, donations, whatever, we will assure you can get to heaven through our sacraments. And ours are the true sacraments. Everyone else's are false sacraments, etc. Because they've concretized the symbolism, none of them have a clue what they're talking about because they haven't had the experiences yet. But that is available. And I haven't had my experience yet. Maybe a few fluttering insights or whatever. I'm not here proclaiming, I'm a prophet, follow thou me now. Yeah, let's start a religion. Come on and I'll dress you up in fine clothes and I'll wear the goofy looking bathrobes. No, none of that noise. But it's available. And I'm going to try to track it down, just for kicks and giggles. I'd like to know. I'd like to see for myself. So, you know, when I do, I probably won't tell you about it, because I can kind of get an inkling of what they mean when they say, well, this is sacred. Well, sure. And it's not that you can't share the sacred. It's that if someone hasn't experienced it and you try to describe it, you come across as a complete lunatic nut job. Yeah. That's why the mystics are so made fun of. You know. I get that, because we like to fall into the bed of Procrustes of imagining our view 
of reality is the only one there is. And in that assurity, we lose our own dilettantism. I just read in Heinrich Zimmer's fantastic book, The King and the Corpse, yesterday about dilettantism, the fun, the joy, the excitement of learning a new meaning, of learning a new application of a potential reality, of rereading the old stories, no matter what books they come from, or of listening to the old stories, no matter of what group of people are telling the stories, and coming up with yet again another fresh interpretation because the joy, the dilettantism, the meaning of the dilettante is to have that eternal joy, that excitement for the new insight, the new interpretation, because we are dealing with a plentitude of plentitude that we cannot exhaust, and therefore, once you solidify yourself into thinking that I now have the true meaning, you shut off all the other, you know, views. And it's all those other views also that have meaning. All we get is a sliver. We are finite trying to digest the infinite. And you can exhaust the infinite as much as you want, and you still haven't even hardly got a start because there's an infinite more amount coming at you. The dilettante is not solid in knowing what is true and what is false, and therefore we must stay with the true. That is church view not the divine worldview, because you can't exhaust it. The sunlight keeps right on shining, and I'm not the only one that's shining on. It's shining on all things in its purview. So this is the fun thing about exploring the divine, is it is inexhaustible. That was the one thing that helps me grasp that I don't even have to worry about whether Joseph Smith was a true prophet or not. That's irrelevant to contacting the divine world. You don't have to have it through Joseph Smith. You don't have to have it through Mother Teresa. You don't have to have it through Buddha. You don't have to have it through Jesus Christ. You can have your own real divine encounter. It's available for all. That's the message. And it's a pretty doggone exciting one, in my opinion. So. Thanks for watching the Backyard Professor videos. Do good, be well, have fun. Make friends, be kind, be happy, and be loving. That is the key. I'm not just saying that to have a cute little quippy closing either. Be kind and learn how to be loving. Open up your heart and share the love because that is the basis of a higher reality. That's true. Watch Steve Hartman every Friday night on, on the news. He always has those fun, cool little stories of giving and love and sharing and kindness and humanity. That's one huge key because that's what the divine world is. And that isn't real in our world right now. So there you have it. Thanks for watching my videos. I will see you in the next Backyard Professor video.